Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Fayetteville. My name is Caroline Turner, and this is Tad Moore, and we're on staff in FSM here at Fellowship Fayetteville working with 7th through 12th graders. So you don't see us very often on Sundays because we're all the way over in that room. Um, actually, yesterday, we got back from a week in Colorado with our upperclassmen. Um, I was in Estes Park with the girls, and Tad was over in Winter Park with the guys, and we got to be with students from Springdale, Rogers, and Bentonville FSM, which was amazing. We got to go rock climbing, um, hiking. The guys went mountain biking. The girls did not go mountain biking. Um, we also went white water rafting, but more importantly, we just got to spend time with the Lord together. We had great times of Bible teaching and worship and quiet time together in the mountains, acknowledging God's creation, but also his character and what his word says about him and about us. And we have great news this year that neither Caroline or I fell out while whitewater rafting, which was like a first. So yeah. <laughs> we did it. We've fallen out often. Yeah, and thank many of you who helped contribute to students being able to go and experience that with us. We're really grateful for all of you who contributed to some students so that they could come with us. Uh, we have a couple other announcements for some things we're gonna be doing this summer. This Tuesday, we're gonna be starting a summer discipleship program for students. Uh, we're gonna meet Tuesdays from 10 to 12, and we're gonna basically do a condensed version of Panorama, which was one of our training center classes, giving an overview of the entire Bible, and then have conversations about how we can better talk about Jesus with our friends. And so we've got a QR code. If you're interested in that, students, we would love for you to join us. If you know some students that might be interested, uh, reach out to us. We're gonna start Tuesday, this week, and so we can't wait to get started with that experience. Another quick announcement, Merge starts this week. Um, and so if you are seriously dating or engaged, uh, this is a great premarital um, option for you to, to talk about what will it look like whenever we bring our lives together, merge together and life together. Uh, there will also be an option for Merge this fall. So if you've got questions, we've got folks out in the foyer at some of the connection booths. Um, the student ministry team will be at the information desk as well. And we have a few free resources for parents. And we'd just love to meet you if you would love to get a student plugged into small groups before we launch this fall. So we're really grateful that you're all here. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll head into a time of worship. Um, God, thank you, Father, for who you are. God, that you're a God that sees everything um, about us. You know everything that we've ever done, yet you still love us um, and show us grace. And you sent your son to die for us, and we're so thankful for that. God, thank you um, for this time that we get to worship together. Um, so many generations in this room, God. Um, God, we're thankful for the body of Christ that is fellowship. Um, God, I just pray over this morning, would you be with us, Father? Would you speak to our hearts and allow us to learn more about you? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Um, if you guys don't know who I am, my name is Isaiah Minor, and I get the privilege to serve alongside these guys um, on the FSM team. And this is Emily Reuter, one of the uh, FSM residents. And this morning, um, as we turn to worship, um, I was reminded even this last week as we were in Colorado, um, the privilege it is to get to worship with God's people. Um, it was cool to see a group of high school guys um, as distracted and energetic as they were just chase after the Lord. Um, it didn't matter the songs that we were singing, but they entered into the space of worship with expectant hearts just ready to meet with Jesus. Um, and that's what I ask all, all of us this morning, as one family from youngest to oldest, as we turn to sing this morning, will we go to meet the Lord with an expectant heart? 
um, excited for what he's going to do in us this morning. Um, we're gonna sing some familiar songs and maybe some songs you don't know this morning. But above all else, could we sing these songs like prayers written on our heart this morning? So let's stand and let's sing together. Lord, I come. Lord, I come. I confess bowing here. Bowing here. I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart, and you're the one that guides my heart. Sing these familiar words, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every voice we sing, and Lord, I need. 
church family. Uh, I'm Joe Ray, and this is my wife, Elizabeth, and this is Lawson Ray. Lawson is eight years old, and um, he's our middle child. He's always been our, our curious child, wanting to learn more, asking a lot of good questions, and over the last year, as we've talked about who Jesus was um, and what he did on this earth, that led him to asking a lot of questions about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And, and so over the last um, few months, <clears throat> that's led him to the realization that he is a sinner in need of a savior and ultimately to confession uh, and belief. So we, we have a family verse I'd love to share with you all. It's, it's Romans 12. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And that's our prayer for our family and for all of our boys. Uh, and earlier in Romans, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so, Lawson, is it your profession here in front of this church that you are uh, a believer in Jesus and you want to follow him the rest of, the, of your life? Awesome. Well, then it is my privilege to baptize you, my brother.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Good job. And that's good news this morning. Man, let's think of God's goodness even in light of that. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me, your goodness. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you scripture reading. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. may be seated. Good morning, church family. Good 
to be with you on this holiday weekend. And Emily, uh, Isaiah, thank you guys for using your gifts to bless us and uh, for reading the scriptures this morning. Uh, my name is Clark, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville as we continue in our series in John this morning. I wonder uh, what she was thinking that morning. It was about 11.15 when she left her boyfriend's house, and she made her way past Annie's Coffee Shop and Rick's Bakery, and she made her, she made her way to the edge of town and out towards the well, and as she walked in the noonday heat, the scriptures don't tell us, but I wonder, what was she thinking that day? Is this the life that I thought it would be as a little girl, and um, my marriages haven't worked out, and what's so unlovable about me? What is this about me that can't find in marriage what I'm longing for? And why would I be put away? Maybe through divorce, and why did I lose two of my husbands to death? And God, I know I've done some things, but this must be what it means to have your sins haunting you this side of eternity. I wonder what was going through her mind, well, for sure, she was likely thinking that being alone out here in the noonday heat is much better than coming early or late and suffering under the scorn and the shame of the looks of women who were better than her. And as she makes her way to the well, I wonder if she had this thought, what? why is there someone here and who is this guy? Well, if you've been with us uh, the last 16 weeks, we've been working through the book of John together, and we've done it in a very unique way. And so if you're new with us, um, we looked at the at seven I am statements of Jesus that speak to his deity. Um, we then took some time to look at some miraculous signs that he did to authenticate his personhood and why he came and why he's worth following and what he did to change and transform lives. And we're in the last section here this summer of of, of our John series, and we're in the, the section that we're, we're calling it Encounters, where he comes face-to-face with you and I, and he comes face-to-face with real people, and he has these interactions with them, and we see here in our story today the collision of God's compassion, his deity, his humanity, his theological acumen in human form as Jesus interacts with this woman about worship. And it's reminded me of this statement that I get made fun of by my staff a little bit around here. Um, what are we doing here, people? Have you said that in the last couple of years? Have you had that in your mind? What are we doing here, people? Well, I'll tell you what we're doing in here, in this room on Sunday mornings, is we're trying to figure out who Jesus is and why, he, why he's the king and why he's worth following. And we want every person in here to have an intimate personal knowledge of the Savior and to walk with him and to find your life by losing it to him. That's why we're in here, to buy into his mission and why he came and why he wants to give you your life back by losing it. That's why we're here this morning. And in this encounter, we get to know a little bit more about who Jesus is, and so we're gonna do that as we walk through this story. We're simply gonna see the thirst, 
We're going to see the broken, and we're going to see the Messiah. And as the scripture was read, I'll summarize these first few verses as we set up the scene. The Pharisees have learned that Jesus is, uh, and his followers are baptizing more, and um, this is this is a big deal in that it's early in John, and we know that in John 2, he told his mother, my hour has not yet come, and so Jesus has to do, Jesus has to do this dance with the Pharisees because his hour has not yet come to start making his way to the cross, okay? It's not a big deal that he's gaining more of a following than John. John actually said it in this gospel, I must decrease, and he must increase, and so we have that going. He leaves Judea, and he's going back more once to Galilee, north, and he has to go through Samaria. He comes to this town, and he comes to this area called Jacob's Well, and it's about noon, and he sits down by the well. Now, as you can see on this map here, um, this, this part of the world and this region is fascinating. There are other ways to get to where he was going to Galilee, and most often, and we'll learn why, the Jews would go around Samaria. They had a lot of issues with Samaritan people, and we're going to learn about that. But they would go around. There were two or three other ways they could go. Well, where we find him today, he's going right through the middle with some intent. And what I love about some of these old maps is if you know anything about Israel's salvation story and their history, these places and these mountains and these scenes are representative of their story. Like we have a story that has people and places and events that a faithful God showed up. There's places of brokenness and sin and salvation and rescue. So when you see a map, it comes to life. And so we have here in this scene the Old Testament colliding with the onset of this new covenant that is making its way onto this planet through the work of the Son, Jesus. And we're gonna pick it up here in verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in town to buy food. It's just her and him, okay? So he's breaking some social customs or social norms here. And she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews, and this is John's editorial comment, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. One of the things we're going to see in this passage is we're going to get to go to school this morning. And I know if you're a child in here or a student, you don't want to be thinking about school, okay? But we're going to go to a fishing school, okay? The master fisherman, Kyle Nicodemus, we're going to learn from him on how he fishes for men and women, he says, the scriptures tell us in Luke 19, 10 that he's come to seek and save the lost. And so we're gonna get to see him do this as he interacts with the Samaritan woman. And the first thing that I see here is vulnerability. Jesus, in his humanity, he comes down from God, incarnate. He dwells with and among us. That's humiliating in and of itself. Then he stoops down below a, a, a cultural or social norm. He speaks with a woman In public, no less an enemy of the Jews, the Samaritans, they don't get along, and in his humanity expresses a physical need, thirst. So we see him vulnerable right out of the gate in a humble state as he begins to communicate the good news about who he is. We also see risk. 
He crosses gender lines. He crosses ethnic lines. He crosses religious lines, social demographic lines. He's willing to risk reputation to take the initiative to sow the good news of Jesus. There's a question for us there. Are you willing to take risk across those same lines to initiate the good news of Jesus in favor of Arkansas? Are you willing to do that? He models that for us. Now, what about these Samaritans? What's the, what's the deal with them? I think we've, uh, we've branded them in the wrong way sometimes, not understanding their history and where they fit in Scripture. And so um, we're going to move out of the fisherman school into the history classroom for just a minute. This will help make the, the passage, I think, think, come to life here. In the Old Testament, there was a wicked king named King Omri. When the kingdom split, he made the new capital of their worship or their kingdom, Samaria. And he made their place of worship, this place called Mount Gerizim. And that became the place where they worshiped. They were invaded by Assyrians in 722. Okay, these Assyrians, they exported or deported some of the Israelites. Some of the Israelites stayed. They intermarried with them while continuing to worship false gods. After the exile, the Jews returned to Jerusalem. They viewed these, these neighbors up north who were ethnically and religiously compromised as now not true worshipers of the true God, Yahweh. So that's a little bit about their animosity, okay? But they were committed to worship on Mount Gerizim. They built this temple to worship God there. And it was built uh, by a man who was uh, married uh, to a foreign woman. And uh, the first priest was also married to a foreign woman, okay? And so they were, they were compromised. But this is what put them over the edge, all right, in 128 BC, a Jewish ruler went in and destroyed this Samaritan temple of worship. And so this would have happened about 200 years before this scene that we have here in front of us today. And so that really ramped up the hostility. The Samaritans were also incredibly committed to the Torah or the Pentateuch, our first five books of the Bible. They were so committed to that, they didn't believe there was another prophet after Moses. And if the Messiah was to come, he would be the new and better Moses, the restorer of Israel. And so just a little bit of background on why there's some tension there. We later see in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples on mission to the lost sheep of Israel, and he says, don't go into those Samaritan towns yet. He's later refused hospitality by a Samaritan. He then tells a story about the good Samaritan, we call a parable, and this good Samaritan actually helps an injured Jew. And then we also see, after Jesus heals these 10 lepers, one leper comes back and says, thank you, and that leper was a Samaritan. So a little bit of Samaritan background there. Now back to our story. Sir, the woman, in verse 11 here. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this? living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? As did his sons and his livestock and Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, and she's not getting it. 
She's not getting the metaphor at this point. Sir, give me this water so I won't have to keep coming here to get water. Another lesson here from the master fisherman. He uses common, everyday object lessons and metaphors to communicate the good news about who he is. And we know he's done this in other places in John. He's the bread. He's the light. He's the shepherd. Here, it's not an I am statement, but he's the source of living water, true spiritual life. And in doing so, he becomes the answer to this broken life and what we're about to see, her broken view of worship here. He tells her, verse 16, he gets really personal, go, call your husband back. I have no husband, she replies, and he said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. He pushes further and peers into her past, and if she was not aware of her spiritual thirst now, I think she's starting to get the picture and understand who the thirsty one is. Interesting here, and I think this is good for all of us who are trying to understand how to read our Bible and be good students of the scriptures, okay? I always say this, we're trying to learn how to be self-feeders in here so that you're not dependent on a 30-minute teaching, but we do that in the context of community. So we, we ask, what does the text say, and what does it not say? Well, based on this text alone, we actually don't know how her marriage is ended. It's probably unlikely that she lost all five of her previous husbands to death, but I think we assume a lot of times that she committed adultery five times over. That's how she lost her marriages, and now she's living with a man. And that's clear in the text that she is living with a man. If she knew her Pentateuch or the Torah, she would be familiar with this verse because it was likely hovering over her. A little bit more history, Deuteronomy 24. Hear some of these words as the law put out how to handle some divorce-type situations. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house. After she leaves, she becomes the wife of another man. That second husband dislikes her, writes her a certificate of divorce gives it to her, sends her from his house. If he dies, the first husband can't marry her because he'll, she's defiled and she's, she'll be viewed as detestable and that practice in the eyes of the Lord, okay? So there's a lot here, but for our purposes this morning, I'm wondering if these killer Ds that we'll call them this morning are hovering over her as Jesus peers into her soul. There's not a woman in here this morning, that wants to wake up and feel the shame of these killer Ds, displeasing, disliked, detestable, defiled. Do you think she felt that on this noonday? I wonder if the memory of some of these past relationships, and we don't know, again, how they all ended. Adultery could have been committed. She could have lost a few to death, but we, what we do know is that she's currently living with a man and she stepped outside of their moral code. And she's feeling the shame of rejection and the shame of sin. So what does she do? She diverts the attention to the argument 
she immediately moves to a, another conversation about another topic. Where do we worship Yahweh? Where's the right place to worship? And now, now to be fair, we've done this too. And so when someone wants to talk about your heart and talk about what's going on in your life and the sin struggles you have, we want to say, well, what about all those hypocrites at church? What about creation? Is that happening in six days, really? What about predestination? And we've got these other diversion techniques that are used, and they've got a spiritual veneer to them, but we don't want to deal with what's going on in our heart, and she does that here. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. She acknowledges that. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied in verse 21, and we know he's used that word. It's not, it's not a condescending word. He used it of his mother in one scene. We've learned that in the past. But he speaks to her and he says, believe me, a time is coming when you're gonna worship the Father, uh, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, is coming in the future. Interestingly enough, he actually says has now come in and of himself as the Messiah on this planet as he makes his way to the cross and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And so if the intention of her heart was to divert, he helps her understand in her diversion what true worship is. And he again, he does what a great communicator of the good news. He makes sure that he's the center of this gospel message. So he moves the diversion and makes it about him and points her to a greater worship that is now coming. This worship is not of the external kind. It's the kind of the spirit. It's the kind of the heart. It's what God sees. It's about this new covenant that's coming, this new heart, this spirit that in Acts would indwell the believers and they would become the new temple. And it would not be about a place. And I want us to, to note two incredibly important, sitting the point of the teaching, but two incredibly important lessons for us as a church family this morning. One, salvation is from the Jews and for the world. Jesus was living out this promise made to Abraham. In fact, in Isaiah 49, 6, uh, there's a promise. It's too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring those back to Israel that I've kept. I will make you a light unto the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Reminds me of Acts 1, 8, where he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is our first cross-cultural evangelism moment in the New Testament. He stepped across all of these demographic lines and has now taken the gospel to what we might consider a Gentile space. Salvation is from the Jews and for the world. Worship is about a person, not a place. Doesn't mean this room isn't important, but worship only has weight and substance in value because of the person that we worship. As comfortable as those chairs are and as big as this screen is to keep you awake and 
as loud as this mic can be, if I get really loud or if Garland's teaching, that's not the point of our gathered time here. It's about worshiping a person, about a person and not a place, and I think Jesus speaks to that here. And in the thirst and in the brokenness, we here we meet the Messiah. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. They, they believe that there's a Messiah coming. When he comes, he's gonna explain everything to us, and then Jesus has his mic drop moment in verse 26. He declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, in the original language, the word he is not in there. When the translators write this in English, they're writing it in sentence form that we can understand without taking away the original meaning. But in its literal version, literal version, it would say, I who speak to you am. And this is consistent with some of the other I am statements. Yahweh is now in your presence, young lady. The disciples show up. They're surprised to see him talking to a woman. Actually, they don't even say anything. She leaves her water pot in this moment, goes back to town, and says this, come see a man. He told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, I've got some questions here related to what, what's happened to her. You know, it's easy when you see Peter engage with Jesus or Martha in John 11, where she just says it. I, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Uh, I believe that uh, you're the one that has the words of eternal life, Peter says in John 6. Uh, you're the son of the living God, okay? We've, we've, it feels like she's, she's creeping that direction. I see that you're a prophet. She asks, if she does believe it, she asks it in a question form. And so what we do have here is an unlikely evangelist. Whatever she believes about who Jesus is, is good enough to go back and tell everybody in her shame state. So I think we have, and you'll see this in John, there's a lot of moments of progressive belief, and it's hard to see when people come to faith or are converted. We see the fruit of that with her here uh, just a little bit. And the focus here, and we're gonna skip over uh, verses 31 to 38, um, if you're taking notes, it's simply an overview of this idea of the harvest. And it's basically, he's painting the picture of what's happening in this story. There's a harvest of souls that's happening. Some people sow, some people um, reap. In verse 39, we see the result of her testimony. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. When the Samaritans came uh, to see him, they actually implored Jesus to stay with them a Jew in this Samaritan village to stay with them an extra two days. It says, because of his words, many more became believers. And I love this statement. We, we no longer believe just because what you said, if it's, as if that's not good enough, Jesus changed your life, but now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Belief, trust, reliance, they took him at his word and believed that he was the Messiah that was promised to them. He is the true and the better Moses, as they would have believed. So I wanna bring it home like this, this statement. He told me everything I ever did, could he be the Messiah? 
for the person in the room this morning who's in a, you're in a diversion place. And right now, it's, it's a holiday weekend. You're just not in a place to deal with what's going on in your heart, okay? I'm, I, I get that, all right? But I'm not going to let you off the hook this morning. We're going to go there. If Jesus peered into your heart and your soul this morning, what would he see if he could say, I've seen everything you've ever done? What would he see if he could peer into your soul? For the woman, go and call your husband and come back. He found her point of pain, of deep need, of thirst. What might he say to you, to me? What might he say to me? Clark, I, I remember watching you in your room in the corner on Lindale Drive there in Little Rock when you were 11, and mom and dad told you that you're moving and you're going to leave your best friend, Mark. I remember that day. Clark, I remember that first time you stumbled onto a pornographic image. And I remember how that had an effect in your life. You battled lust. Clark, I remember your senior year of high school and when your parents were going through some of their marriage trouble. And I remember you moving away to college in South Minton Hall. And I remember that, those, that moral struggle you were working through as you were trying to figure out whether or not I was worth following. I remember those days. I remember seeing you weeping in bed over in Birch Place up here north in, uh, of here in Johnson. And just weeping because you didn't feel adequate or worthy or know how or you lacked confidence to be a dad. And you were overwhelmed by the idea of raising three boys. I remember watching you cry that night. I remember on Southridge here in Fayetteville seeing you as you finally came to the end of yourself and you admitted to me that you couldn't fix your anger. I saw you that day. You've never been the same since. I've watched you here the last six years in this building with your church family. I've watched you battle to walk in the fruit of the Spirit as you've learned how to give up control because you're not in control. What would he see in you this morning if he peered into your soul? What would he see? Would he see past relationships before your marriage? Would he see relationships maybe right now in your marriage? There's an emotional affair that's happening at work. and Nobody knows about it except you and that other person. Would he see that? Does he see something restless in your soul that can never buy enough? No matter how much you get, you're more empty than ever. Is that what he sees in you this morning? For some of you, he knows what happened to you at seven, and it was wrong, and it was unjust. You've experienced hurt and pain from that moment ever since. He sees that. He sees the decisions you've made to cope with that pain. What does he see in you? Why do you keep people at arm's distance? How do you feel alone with so many friends? Does he see that? I know about those extra drinks. I know how you're playing pills off each other right now. What does he see? 
And the question for all of us is, what if he knew the real me? Would he give me living water? Go call your husband. She was found out, and we have been fooled. I'd implore you, church family, this morning to believe in a man who has seen and told you everything you've ever done. Come see this Messiah that the Samaritan townspeople fell in love with. This woman has extended living water and hope, and there's hope for a five-times-divorced woman who's living with a man who's not like Jesus, that there's hope for her this morning. There's hope for us. Come and drink of this living water and believe, trust, and rely on this Savior who's the Messiah for the whole world. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the work and the goodness and the grace of your son. And uh, thank you for your generous spirit to give him to us, to give us hope. God, I pray for each person in here. Um, We've had our soul peered into this morning uh, by you, by your word. Our hearts are laid open. God, I pray that you would use uh, maybe the, the day off tomorrow to help us wrestle with you on how good this living water is that you've given us. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to have those conversations with those that it matters to and that you would help us find healing, set us free from our brokenness, fill our thirsty hearts. Oh, I depend on you. 
Born again, and I've been born. 
is this young lady or seasoned veteran in her life had been through a lot. And this unlikely evangelist that she became, uh, she hadn't been through an evangelism class. Um, she didn't understand uh, some of the uh, deeper things of the faith. But what she didn't know is that a man had told her everything that she'd ever done and given her living water. If you're a baby in your faith in here this morning, or a seasoned veteran in your faith, your greatest evangelistic tool you have is to invite people to come see a man, and his name is Jesus, and tell him, tell them about the living water that he's been to you and to me. In the spirit of that, thank you, church family, for being with us this morning. If you find yourself in a place in need of prayer this morning, we've got folks in the prayer room to your right over here through these doors. We'd love to pray with you. Have a great holiday weekend. We love you.